This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, Latin America after Iran's whirlwind courtship tour. Did Ahmadinejad's trip yield any results? And a discussion that takes us deep into Colombia and the drug war. But first, Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati is back from South America, and she has our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. In Guatemala, retired General Otto Perez Molina officially took office on Saturday. Guatemala's new president promised to crush crime with an iron fist. The execution of civilian and border safety, as well as the strengthening of the national safety and justice system, are a priority in that sense. Mexican drug cartels largely operating Guatemalan territory and the country now has one of the world's highest homicide rates. Pérez Molina is the first military officer elected as a Guatemalan president since the end of the military government 25 years ago. He was director of intelligence in that administration. His iron fist campaign won him the presidency in a country with double the murder rate of Mexico. The Mexican Navy found 12 shipping containers of chemicals that can be used to make the drug methamphetamine this week. That's equal to about 195 tons. China shipped the chemicals and they were on their way to Guatemala and Nicaragua. Authorities say that Mexican drug cartels are expanding their operations in Guatemala. Mexican officials say the chemical found, methylamine, can also be used to produce cocaine. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez speculated last month whether the United States had developed the technology to induce cancer. He claimed to make this remark out of curiosity because so many Latin American presidents have been diagnosed lately, including himself. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff had treatment for lymphoma in 2009, and her predecessor Lula da Silva had throat cancer. Paraguayan President Fernando Lugo also was diagnosed with lymphoma about a year and a half ago. Now, experts say that the increasing number of people getting cancer is to be expected in the region due to wealth growth, urbanization, and lifestyle changes. Experts dismiss Chavez's law of probabilities by stating that the leaders suffer different types of cancer, and the biological mechanisms behind each one are different. Argentine President Cristian Fernández de Kirchner was recently misdiagnosed with cancer and had surgery, but it turned out to be a thyroid problem. The U.S. government's decision to pull out all its Peace Corps volunteers from Honduras for safety reasons is another blow to a nation recently labeled the world's most deadly country. Neither U.S. nor Honduran officials spoke about what exactly triggered the decision to withdraw 158 Peace Corps volunteers, which the U.S. called in 2011 one of the largest missions in the world. But Honduran President Porfirio Lobo says the wave of violence and drug cartel-related crime affects volunteers working on HIV prevention, water sanitation, and youth projects. President of El Salvador, Mauricio Funes, apologized on behalf of the state to the victims of a massacre during the Civil War. He announced a number of social and economic measures meant to help victims and families in El Mozote the site of a 1981 massacre of more than a 1,000 civilians. Funes promised to declare the community a protected historic site and update public school curricula about the massacre. The 12-year-long civil war resulted in 75,000 deaths and included crimes against humanity committed by the government. 
This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. And now our first in-depth interview on the topic of Iran and its interest in Latin America. Iran's President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad toured through the region last week, visiting Venezuela, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Joining us to discuss his trip is Cynthia Arnson, the director of the Latin America program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Dr. Arnson, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you for the invitation. What do you see as the after effect of Ahmadinejad's trip? Well, I'm not sure there is much of an after effect. I think the biggest stir was created by the fact that he was going uh, to visit Latin America. The motive was um, the inauguration of President Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, and so he used that opportunity and that invitation to visit a number of the countries uh, that he had visited in the five previous trips that he had taken to the region. But I think what was most um, absent in, uh, in, in the trip um, was uh, a visit to Brazil uh, or a visit to Argentina. Both of those two countries are, are Iran's largest trading partners um, in Latin America. And in contrast to the welcome that had been offered by President Lula in 2009, uh, President Dilma Rousseff of Brazil pointedly did not uh, invite him, and, and Brazil was not included in his itinerary. Well, what's going on with the politics there? Can, can you get us a little deeper on, on why maybe this friendly invitation wasn't extended by Argentina or by Brazil? Perhaps it had something to do with health reasons in Argentina or maybe not? No, it really didn't have to do with health reasons. The, the, the principal reason, and I think the, the most troubling evidence of uh, Iran's role in the region, um, has to do with the bombings um, in 1992 and 1994 of the Israeli embassy and of the Jewish Community Center. Um, those were terrorist attacks that killed uh, together over 100 people, hundreds more were wounded, and the Argentine government has had a very sort of tortuous uh, investigation with a lot of allegations of corruption and, and judges removed at one time or another, but ultimately there were arrest warrants issued for um, a number of members of Hezbollah and also a number of senior Iranian officials, one of them uh, the current defense minister um, of Iran, who uh, coincidentally visited Bolivia, uh, and when the Argentine government made it known to the Bolivian government that that uh, this person was, you know, was wanted by uh, Interpol, um, he left the country, and President Morales of Bolivia actually apologized, um, not only to the Argentine president, but to the Argentine Jewish community for having invited this person who was um, implicated um, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the AMIA bombing. This is one of the concerns that various conservative members of the U.S. Congress brought up, is that here you have um, the president of Iran coming into the region, and this represents something um, that is a concern on the security side in the region. Well, there's obviously the, the precedent of what took place in Argentina, and what's become difficult now, I think, is to separate um, the various allegations about what Iran is doing, particularly in Venezuela, with confirmed fact based on reliable sources and, and, and checking of sources and, and that sort of thing, because there are a lot of allegations about the uh, uh, Iranians looking for uranium um, in Venezuela. I think the most uh, credible 
allegation has to do with the use of the banking system um, to evade international sanctions. There's an Iranian bank, there's a development bank, um, you know, in Caracas that uh, that I think is credibly uh, believed to be um, a, a, an avenue for the Iranian government to evade international sanctions. There were also mild sanctions put on the Venezuelan oil company PDVSA in 2008 uh, for selling gasoline, you know, to Iran. Um, in in violation of the sanctions. Um, but there are a lot of very scary scenarios. There obviously was the, the recent incident where the Venezuelan consul in, in, um, in Miami was expelled on the basis of a report um, and a documentary uh, filmed by Univision um, showing that this particular individual had been involved in a plot to launch cyber attacks against the United States. Um, it's very difficult. The nature of these kinds of operations are by definition clandestine and, and difficult to um, investigate and, and penetrate. Um, and, you know, I think the charges have to be taken seriously, but I also think that particularly as we're in an election year that there's a lot of opportunity um, to use uh, the information or the very sort of disparate threads um, as, as a way of um, accusing the Obama administration of ignoring this, sh this issue or not paying um, sufficient attention or devoting sufficient resources to investigating. Um, and I think the, the partisan aspect of this is, is very troubling. Well, listeners to this program know that we like to tamp down rhetoric and deal more with facts. So let, let's follow a few streams of things that, that you brought up. I'm wondering um, first about the cyber attacks and the consul, the Venezuelan consul in Miami. Um, were those tied directly to Iran? There was, um, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure what that connection was. The more lurid allegation has to do uh, with an Iranian-backed plot to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington uh, using uh, members of uh, Mexican drug trafficking cartels. Um, what we know about that uh, is probably not as much as, as uh, uh, you know, what exists, you know, um, but, the, but the, the allegation that the Zetas were involved, I think, does not really stand up to scrutiny. Um, what did take place, what appears to have taken place, is an Iranian national contacted a Mexican, uh, a Mexican who he thought was a drug trafficker, who was actually an agent of the DEA, and that's how the plot, uh, you know, was uh, was exposed. Um, were the Iranians plotting to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington? I mean, who knows. Um, uh, there have been assassinations in Washington before, uh, notably Orlando Letelier in 1976, um, by you know at the at the hands of the Chilean Secret Service, the DINA, um, and a number of uh, former CIA and, and Cuban exiles who were involved in the plot. So things that seem really preposterous uh, or unlikely can actually be true. I'm not in a position to to comment uh, one way or another. But I'd like to go back actually um, to another issue that you raised, which has to do with the role of Brazil, um, because it's. I think there's been a very notable shift in the policy towards Iran um, under the new government of Dilma Rousseff, who's been in power now, who's been in office for for um, a, a year. Um, unlike the Lula government, she is not seeking to play a role in Middle East politics. Um, the uh, attempt by uh, Brazil, together with Turkey, to find. Um, a, a, a negotiation or to negotiate with Iran in a way uh, that would avoid 
um, the international sanctions that were being pushed by the United States and a number of other European powers um, didn't end so well. Um, I'm not sure that we know the full story about um, the advisability of that initiative, but nonetheless, the Rousseff uh, government has pushed back, has been very critical of the human rights violations of the Iranian government, uh, called you know a, a, a sentence against a woman for adultery, uh, death by stoning, called it a barbarity. Um, and there is really seems to be no interest in, in uh, this kind of international engagement with the Iranian government. That said, Brazil and Argentina continue to be the largest trading partners. Venezuela is actually fairly far down on the list. So I'm wondering, is, was this trip uh, Iran's way to seek out other resources in the region? Um, or what is your take on, on what this was? Or was this merely symbolism the entire trip? I think it was a political opportunity, um, both for the Iranian president and for the number, the presidents that he, uh, of, of the countries that he visited in the region. Um, these are not countries that uh, that he has not had a relationship with in the past. He's visited Venezuela now five times. Chavez has been to Iran. A um, little less contact with the governments of Bolivia and Ecuador um, and, and Cuba. And there's actually uh, Fidel Castro came out and, and publicly criticized uh, the Iranian president for denying the Holocaust and saying that, you know, you, that this is not true. So there's always, I think, been a little bit of a troubling relationship. But what binds these governments together is a common um, agenda of, uh, of uh, anti-Americanism, of a desire to show independence. Um, that desire is shared by a number of governments in the region, but it is not explicitly driven by an anti-U.S. agenda. But you also have to remember that there's a historical relationship between Venezuela and Iran. The two countries were both founders of of OPEC, uh, and there, you know, has been a long sort of historical involvement um, in that. But the current, I think, political environment is driven by the relative isolation of almost all of these governments um, in Latin America from the region, from the dominant sort of um, uh, political and economic direction of, of the region, and certainly in in, in Iran. Um, it's often said that people, when they're facing domestic difficulties, you know, go abroad. I think it did serve for Ahmadinejad to show that Iran was not totally isolated internationally, that it still had friends and allies, and it also is particularly helpful that those friends and allies are in what has historically, I mean, wrongly, been, but historically been considered the U.S. backyard, in quotes. So there's an obvious political advantage, uh, you know, for him to show up, you know, in these areas of, of, of the world where the, where the you know, United States traditionally was seen as exercising influence. Thank you, Cynthia Arnson, the director of the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now our interview with Stephen Dudley, the director of InsightCrime.org. Stephen, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks for having me. 
You're just back from more than a month in Colombia. What can you share with us about the drug war there, the involvement of Colombia's guerrillas, known as the FARC, and the effect of the killing of the FARC's leader, Alfonso Caño, late last year? Well, in terms of the drug war, um, I suppose you could say that it's entered a new phase. And what the goal was for many years was to take a problem which they considered a national security problem and reduce it to a crime problem. Um, It's the same goal that other countries, such as Mexico, have also placed in front of them. And and, and to a certain extent, they've achieved that in Colombia. They have pushed the largest groups, in particular the rebels from the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC, to the fringes, um, um, in many cases even over borders. Um, They have taken large organizations uh, that were heavily involved in drug trafficking, uh, paramilitary groups in particular that went under different banners, uh, the most notable of which was the United Self-Defense Groups of Colombia. These would be the right-wing conservative groups? These would be the groups that were uh, established in the 80s and really came to the fore in the 90s as, let's just call them the sort of uh, the, the paramilitary groups looking to defend the state's interests and large economic groups' interests and fight the guerrillas. They, they uh, ostensibly set up to uh, eliminate suspected members of the guerrillas um, and their support networks. This included thousands and thousands of civilians who were also displaced in massive numbers. And so these groups were dismantled, um, in some cases willingly, in some cases unwillingly, uh, during a peace process which has gone on over the last seven years. And and they were the, the largest single distributors of of drugs to the United States at the time when they started to uh, demobilize because it was official an official peace process that was brokered by the government. Um, so you've got these, you've got the guerrilla groups who've been pushed to the fringes. Uh, you've got these large um, paramilitary groups that have demobilized. Um, and what's happened is you, you've, you've created a situation where you have numerous factions. You no longer have, let's say, six or seven large groups now you literally have hundreds, um, and these hundreds of groups are broken down into tiers. Um, at the top tier, you'd have groups that are still exporting large amounts of drugs uh, through Central America, mostly in Mexico to the United States, in concert with their Mexican and Central American partners. When, when you say drugs, we're talking about cocaine or more than just cocaine? Mostly cocaine. You know, we're talking about cocaine and, you know, small amounts of marijuana but and heroin, but, but no mostly cocaine. No meth in, in that? No, the meth, is, the meth is produced further north. Um, the precursors for the meth come in from, you know, different parts, mostly Asia into Mexico and Central America and is then developed there and and set north but but a huge amount of meth is produced in the United States itself some clarification if if I may um, when we talked about the FARC uh, this is a long time left-wing guerrilla organization that actually started during the Cold War period and and if I caught what you said correctly um, you're talking about them getting involved in 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 drug running 
Is this how they how they finance themselves? Why would they get involved in drug running if there's some leftist guerrilla organization? Yeah, I mean the the guerrilla groups in Colombia, most of them started in the '60s. You know, uh, the the FARC in particular was a group that was the the wing, the armed wing of the Communist Party in Colombia, um, and they were mostly rural based um, in support of you know what they considered sort of you know, small landholders' interests. That's the origins, the, the the evolution of a group like that. And in order to grow, you have to find certain sources of income. At first, it may have been just sort of petty extortion um, or local what they would call sort of war taxes. Um, that would evolve eventually into kidnapping in the 70s and then really sort of hit its peak in the 80s and then in the 90s, in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, you have huge amounts of kidnappings on the parts of, of, of the guerrilla groups. And then uh, eventually it also evolves into, at first, taxing, um, you know, local drug producers, even the smallest of, of farmers, you know, who are cultivating the coca leaves to begin to taxing the middlemen and even the large-scale distributors. Um, and those taxes um, link them up with, with large trafficking networks. And what you have now is, as they've been pushed to the edge of the country and even into other countries such as Venezuela, they've now even established their own distribution networks. Um, so there is a, there's been an evolution. It's been a 30-year evolution, um, but there's been an evolution whereby now they have some of their own distribution networks um, and they sell um, frequently to, if they don't have their own distribution networks, they'll sell frequently to their old enemies and the paramilitaries or the ex-paramilitaries. So you've got this sort of strange bedfellow situation now, which is, which is where we are uh, in terms of the evolution of the, large, the largest trafficking groups um, really are working in that sphere. They're, they're working in the sphere of being able to go to large production areas that are still under the purview of the FARC, buy large amounts of what they call coca base, and then move that to coca labs and process that and then sell it on, either sell it on within Colombia or in a further northern, northern spot, Panama or other parts of Central America to, you know, to a Mexican counterpart. You talked about the seven-year peace process, and I also mentioned uh, Cano's death. Uh, someone from the outside who hasn't been to Colombia might say, it sounds like this very long, decades-long war might be coming to its end. What, what's your thought on that? I, I think it's very far from coming to an end. There is um, the, what, the, what the FARC guerrillas uh, understand um, and and have as an ally is is time. They they are not in so much of a hurry. They're, they they don't, they don't go by four year terms. They they're not being elected and reelected and seeking to please constituencies. They're they they understand that that they can be patient. And if things aren't going well for them now, they can move back and they can hide in the shadows and they can change their tactics, which is what they've done, um, and they can regroup. Um, that is not to say that the Colombian government has completely changed the game in terms of their ability to um, 
gather intelligence on the movements of high-level leaders of these organizations and act on that intelligence. And that has been really the, the game changer in, in Colombia, and, and, and we've seen the results of that. We've seen a half dozen top leaders of the FARC either captured or killed in the last few years, and that's, that's due to this evolution of the other side, the evolution of the state side, and that's been, um, that has shown results. And, and those results don't, aren't just about getting rid of top leaders, they're also about um, destroying the morale of, of what's left of the guerrilla army itself. So you, 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 it, it has sort of a domino effect where the lower level soldiers will start to turn themselves in in greater numbers, you know, and it just, um, it, it, has, it has an impact. But having said all that, the, these guys are still strong. Uh, there's still a core amongst them that is ready and willing to fight, and 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 the situation in Colombia has not necessarily um, improved. Um, you know, while the security situation has improved, the socioeconomic situation has gotten worse. The the wealthier are more wealthy now, and the poor are more poor. So, you know, you, you've got the conditions under which these organizations can continue to thrive. What would you characterize as the reason why the state has improved its performance? Is it less corruption? Um, is it more focus? What's your take? They went through a process whereby they professionalized their army. It wasn't necessarily just, a, we're just going to have a conscript army, for instance. And that was a huge step forward in terms of them having uh, the type of soldier that they needed um, that was a professional soldier who was getting paid for his services. He wasn't simply a conscript and who could spend, for example, long periods of time in jungle conditions um, and begin to fight the guerrillas on their terrain. Uh, this, was, this, was a, this was a sea change within the, within the Colombian military. And on the intelligence side, both the military intelligence and the police intelligence services went through a process whereby they um, they they just improved every aspect of it. Their their ability to gather intelligence by you know special uh, you know technical services that they either obtained or purchased from other countries such as the United States uh, to their ability to infiltrate the guerrilla groups with human intelligence, and um, that has also just vastly improved their ability to not only gather intelligence but act on that intelligence. And that's that's what we see. That's why we see the results that we see, the death of Alfonso Cano or, you know, the death of the top military commander of the FARC, Mono Hohoi, in September 2010. Um, so these are, these are major, th these were major pushes forward. Critics of this program would say we don't speak enough about the U.S. drug market and how it drives the drug war and how it propels this particular problem. Um, so what's your take on that? What can people in the U.S. do to engage these problems in Colombia, or can we do anything? The, the real thing continues to be what really, uh, what it's always been, which is demanding accountability. Um, if you are giving large amounts of um, equipment or aid to any um, government or group, be it Colombia or anywhere else in the world, there must be a level of accountability attached to that aid. And that's, that remains the issue. Um, you know, how can we 
continue to supply aid to, for example, I talked about the intelligence services, and for all their advances, there were elements of the intelligence services that were going in completely the wrong direction. That was the presidential intelligence services in Colombia that were basically freelancing for the right-wing paramilitaries and, you know, were spying on suspected enemies of, of the Colombian presidency and, you know, without any authorization or any reason for that matter, uh, that were playing dirty tricks, you know, not unlike the sort of Nixon administration in the United States. I mean, this is... So while you have some elements that were perhaps moving in the right direction in terms of their fight against the guerrillas, you had other elements that were moving in the wrong direction. So there needs to be a sort of blanket notion of accountability. We have to hold them all accountable, not just pieces of them, and other pieces let them slide. That's all the time we have today to speak with Stephen Dudley, the director of the investigative website InsightCrime.org. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>